it's the Healthy Family Show, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. This show is dedicated to parental rights and family sovereignty. And whenever I host this particular show, the goal is to talk about all of the issues that are affecting our children today. And so while the goal is to focus in on their physical health, I also want to touch on spiritual matters as well as how to help them be more emotionally resilient in this time that we're living in. So interestingly enough, I was just on a show here on Colin as a guest, as a caller. And um, it's always interesting to me to talk to doctors. They just are so interesting. And so I'm on this Professor Tim Spector human behavior show talking to Dr. Spector. And um, I decided to call in like I like I do. I love to participate in these shows. And I especially love talking to people who have little letters after their names. I think they're the most interesting people to talk to. So they're talking about nutrition and nutrition and nutrition. What's a good diet? What's a bad diet? Fasting. And then the do- the good doctor is selling his app. And use the app, use that, participate in our study, study, study. And then he's selling something. He's selling micronutrients to, you know, reestablish good, good gut bacteria. So whenever somebody has something to sell, and then they're also trying to promote an app, and they've written a book, and it's big rollout and exciting, um, it's always a good time to just kind of pause <laughs> and think it through, you know. What's the goal? Why why am I being silenced when I'm talking about practical things? And um, am I dis- am I a disruptor when I call into these shows? I don't know. Apparently, I was because they shut me down pretty fast. But um, when talking about health and healthy babies, especially, you have to talk about the mom's diet. And so much of healthcare today is picking up the pieces of mom's faulty diet. There's so many women out there right now who are building babies on microwave popcorn, frozen pizza, and Diet Coke. That's their diet. That's what they eat when they're pregnant. And when they give birth to that baby two months early and it's a preemie and she can't breastfeed because there's nothing there to make the milk, uh, the fallout for the family economically is just devastating. They don't recover. Financially, it's just, you know, you're done because of the preemie costs and sick baby and baby formula, the whole nine yards. And it's often taxpayers who pick up the pieces when mom's diet is faulty because mom is broke. And so she turns to the government to pay her bills and help her raise her child. And so, you know, life goes on for this family, but it is the ignorance of that mom about what it takes to make a healthy baby. That is the problem. That's the first issue, the biggest issue. And when I suggested that on the show, I said, what do you think about pregnancy? And the good doctor, Tim said, you know, well, you know, uh, we're limited on the studies we can do on pregnant and breastfeeding women. So we don't really study them at all. And nobody else really is studying them either. And that is where we are at. We are today. I can tell you that. That is where we are today. And that's where we've been for a long time. You know, 
50, 60, 70 years in America, there's just been this almost willful ignorance about what it takes to make a healthy baby because nobody makes any money when a baby is born healthy and whole. There's not one person who benefits from that except mom and dad. Okay, so why did they shut me out of the room so fast when I started talking about nutrition? Well, they rightly know and understand that when people are healthy, they don't need to turn to the experts to help them with their health. And so there's all kinds of incentives to silence and shove to the side anybody talking about common sense approaches to raising a family. Again, nobody makes any money off the common sense. So it's, it was just an interesting observation. Just I literally just got off that call. It, the show is still going. Um, interesting that when I was trying to make the case that for our pregnant and lactating moms, the most important thing is that she's the one in our society who gets the best foods, who gets the, the high protein foods. And the doctor, first of all, said, well, there's, you know, there's not really any evidence of, of people being protein deficient. And I'm like, protein deficiency is the number one cause of toxemia. And toxemia is a disease that hits mom in the seventh month of her pregnancy. And it's defined by her having horrifying headaches, swelling, rapid weight gain, and convulsions and seizures. Women will sometimes fall down on the ground and convulsing because they are so malnourished. And they, the doctors call this toxemia, preeclampsia, help syndrome. They've got several different names for it. But the bottom line is she is, her body is screaming for food, for nutrients to help feed her growing child. And in the seventh month of pregnancy, the baby is growing so fast that um, it just takes all of mom's resources to make the baby. And it's when the baby's brain is growing the fastest, that seventh, eighth, ninth month of pregnancy, which carries over into the first six months of life. So I specifically said to the doctor, you know, what would make a healthy baby, you know, healthy mom, mom have a good postpartum time with no postpartum depression or other anxiety disorders. He didn't want to go there. You know, maybe perhaps he didn't feel qualified to go there and that's cool, but he certainly did not want to hear what I had to say about it. And it is my contention that we can educate our young moms on the things that they need to do to create a blue ribbon, healthy baby, breastfeed it for at least six months and ideally for a couple of years and have no side effects, no postpartum depression, no anxiety. Mom comfortably and happily goes from being pregnant to nursing her baby and everybody's healthy. It is my belief that that is not only possible, it is what we have to be teaching our young people. When they're little, middle school, high school, you know, the high schoolers today get all sorts of sex education and death culture and the culture at large is constantly screaming at them of how to prevent babies, how to kill babies in the womb. It's very dark, but there is very little effort put out by anyone to educate young people on what it will take for them to make a healthy child. 
Some of the proudest moments of my life as a mom have come with the realization that my two daughters have never suffered with eating disorders, never really tried to diet, never really got caught up in the craze that their peers seem to be so troubled by with the fasting and the excessive dieting and the yo-yo diets and back and forth and the, the bulimia and the anorexia. It's like it wasn't even in their wheelhouse to even consider to do that. And it, it hit me when they were about 25 and their friends were starting to come out of the closet in terms of their eating disorders and how, how truly crazy it was. And my girls really weren't even aware of this because quite often it's a hidden thing when a young person has, a, especially bulimia, she'll go eat normal meals with friends and family and happy as a clam eating, even eating too much, you know, and then she's hiding away and she's purging. And so that binge and purge thing, you know, and when I, when I thought it through, you know, why did these girls just, it just wasn't even on the map for them to consider doing that. Number one reason I believe is that we always had three meals a day and it was family time. It was happy. We're talking and laughing at the table. Food was a positive thing in our home by design. You know, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a, hey, let's all gather on the TV and we'll stuff our faces with, with pizza. It was, no, we're going to sit down. We're going to set the table. We're going to eat together and have it be an uplifting and happy time as a family. And I really think that commitment to having a daily supper together, at least, and ideally breakfast and lunch too, if you can do it, um, sets the pattern. And so many of the young moms who I see online today and in my real life um, who have made that commitment to just get around the table at least once a day with their kids and share a meal together, the happiness that comes off these families, is t it's tangible. You can feel it. And then the other families who I'm aware of where they everybody just you know goes and hides in their own bedroom and eats piecemeal throughout the day, no family gathering around the table. There's some real uh, developmental delays there in some of the kids and their social skills and their ability to talk to adults and just feel like they fit in the world. And I believe that contributes greatly to the mental health crisis we have right now with our teens, that they're just kind of isolated and not really connecting with anybody important in their lives during the day. They're shuffled off to school and daycare and come home and they're sitting in front of their computers and very little normal human interaction. And so it is my great belief that gathering a family around the table, and I don't even care what you eat. I think it is more important that you gather. If you're gathered around a bucket, bucket of Kentucky fried chicken or some cold cereal, even, you know, just sitting around the table together eating is powerful. Now for the conscious parents who say, we're going to jack this up a level and eat some whole foods and really try to teach our kids to eat healthy, you know, good luck with that. You have control over your kid's diet until they're about four years old. And after that, it's just this never ending battle to get the healthy foods into your kids. And the biggest problem came when I sent my kids to school for about 10 years. I had complete control because we didn't send our oldest daughter to school till she was about eight years old. So the first 10 years of our marriage, I, I just 
was doing everything health food, you know, tofu casseroles and all this. I was this really strict vegetarian at the beginning. And nobody really complained. There was one time I made some food that my husband, it was so bad, even he couldn't eat it. So I was like, all right, we'll order some pizza. But most of the time it was, you know, we're going to sit down, we're going to eat this food. And and I had no sugar in the house, no uh, white flour in the house. I was a total purist. And like I said, it worked with kids until my oldest daughter was about eight. And then she went to school. And as soon as she started seeing what all of her friends were eating for lunch, the gummy worms and the yogurt packs and all this processed crap, that was when my battle with the food companies truly began. And it has been a battle. It's been a war for these, gosh, like what, 26 years since. And moms, you have to use stealth. You really do. And in my tutorials online, a lot of my videos I've shared the various tactics I use to get whole foods into my kids because it is not easy. They picky eaters are a thing. And I used to hide food. You know, I'd, I'd make a big batch of brownies and inside of it, I'd whip up a sweet potato, cooked sweet potato, um, maybe some flax seeds. I'd make it with whole wheat and then they're eating the brownies, but they have no clue that I put all this healthy stuff in there too. And I never told as as soon as my kids got old enough to question the food, especially my oldest son, he's like, how much whole wheat is in this? What's the, what's the ratio? You know, is it 50-50? They could stomach it if it was 50% whole wheat and 50% white wheat or white flour. But if it was 100% whole wheat, they didn't like to eat it. So the battles were glorious. I think at the end of the day, I have won the battle, at least in terms of my own five kids. They all cook in their own kitchens. My my oldest son especially has just really been fun to watch because he decided to take on the baking at their house. And uh, he told me every Saturday he loves to bake something and he's invested in these whole grain flours. He hasn't bought a grain mill yet, but he, they live in a small apartment on a, on a campus. So he's planning to do that at some point, but he'll just go to the health food store and buy the frozen flowers the rye and the whole wheat and oats and bring them home and just he bakes something bread rolls uh makes pancakes muffins he's he's doing the work and it's been so fun to watch the health of his babies as they've been born and just you know this next generation coming along who because we modeled it for them they just assume this is what you do and so it's these types of patterns that I believe will help families to grow healthier. And like I said, it was so funny interfacing with these doctors on that other call-in show who, you know, you start talking just nuts and bolts of what that diet would look like and questioning the notion that we should all be vegetarians or only eat meat as if it's a treat and going, well, you know, there's some women in our culture who are literally making the next generation of people who have serious needs for proteins and high quality complex carbohydrates and need to have somebody model for them how to cook those foods in their kitchens and how to come up with this healthy baby. And if we don't take the time and energy to try to do that, then the food companies just kind of take over and we're all, you know, kind of subservient to them. They're advertising, they're 
pressure campaigns to politicians and then doctors like these three who are on the show who are pushing their probiotics and their apps and their books telling you, you know, this is what you need to do to be healthy. And it just makes me laugh. Who wants to be constantly monitoring their colon health? I mean, <laughs> sorry, I got better things to do with my time. So anyway, I wish those guys well. I really don't, you know, harbor any ill will. It's just, it just makes me laugh. So the article I wanted to focus on today, and this is the first I have ever seen of anything like this, showed up this morning at the Post Millennial, and it, it really, you know, pushed my buttons. Because you've been hearing rumors about this happening. This is coming. This is coming. Well, it's here. So here's the headline of the article. Indiana parents lose custody after court rules not affirming child's gender identity is abuse. So we have a 16-year-old boy who's presenting as a girl, and he has been told from his parents' home and put into custody with social services uh, by a judge. So it's happened. We've been hearing things like, oh, there's legislators who are trying to get laws passed to make it possible to make this happen. You've heard that in California and I think Vermont. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember the state. So you've been hearing stories like it's coming. Well, here it is. Here's this kid. He's, his parents have lost custody. They were fighting it on religious grounds that they could not affirm his gender the way that he wanted. The courts came at it from a physical perspective, saying that, that the child was suffering from anorexia and that the parents were not providing adequate mental health care because they were offering therapy at the beginning, but they didn't feel it was helpful, so they stopped. And uh, they, they had taken the kid out of school. So this thing just blew up, and the kid's out of his parents' home. So as, as I said, this show is dedicated to parental rights. I don't claim to have the answers for every family. I don't claim to have the answers for this particular family. All I'm suggesting is that this is an issue I think as a society we're all going to have to grapple with for the next few years until there is a case that hits the Supreme Court and we can get a definitive judgment on what courts can do in regards to parental rights. Until that happens, I think we're all going to just have to, you know, see these cases kind of bubble up to the surface and have a conversation on how much can parents assume that they have proper authority over the spiritual, the physical, um, you know, the emotional rights. Do they get to call it or the, do the doctors and the judges get to call it? And really, in this case, the social worker was really involved. And they were, they were dealing with the school at first, but then they started to homeschool him. And so, you know, here's this case. So any of you guys in the queue have comments on this case? I'd love to talk to you about it. If you want to call in, uh, it was really designed to be the heart of the show. The mom said that, um, she thought that her son would be more likely to have thoughts and self harm if, um, he was involved with the state than if he was at home, meaning 
that the parents are the ones who have skin in the game. They love their son. They want to help him. And, you know, these other people are just, quote, doing their jobs. You know, the social worker, the judge, the attorneys, they're, they're making some money off of this case. And the families here going, you know, we would like to claim some autonomy over our child's life until they turn 18. And then they can do what they want. If they want to transition, fine. And this really feeds into the question of, are we going to let our young people surgically transition before the age of 18? Because if we're not, there needs to be some judgment on that as well, because it's happening all over the country. There are people, men and women under the age of 18, who are having surgical transitions, chemical castrations, and... You know, this is one of the big issues of the day around parental rights. So it looks like nobody wants to call in. I don't really have anything else to talk about, except I will point to the links. I have shared a link to my blog on Substack, healthyfamilies.substack.com. I shared a link to the Dr. Brewer pregnancy diet. And just a note on Dr. Tom Brewer. He was a physician in the 50s and 60s who, in working with his patients down in the rural South, came to believe that it was, in fact, inadequate diets that were causing the toxemia in his patients. And so he developed a diet that would not only prevent toxemia in the seventh month of pregnancy, but it would also create a healthy baby. And so as he refined his diet, he decided to write a couple of books. He and his wife, Gail, wrote together What Every Pregnant Woman Should Know. This book is still a classic in the pregnancy nutrition genre, and I highly recommend it if you want to create a healthy child, What Every Pregnant Woman Should Know by Gail and Tom Brewer. And then Dr. Brewer went on to host a telephone call-in show that he ran for years. This is before the internet. Anybody from around the country, from around the world could call in to his hotline and talk to the good doctor. And because of this show, he really had his finger on the pulse of what was happening out there in the culture in terms of what pregnant women were hearing from their doctors about calorie restriction diets and drugs to use during pregnancy and the various surgical interventions that doctors were so willing to do to deal with the mom who has toxemia. Today, it's pretty much standard practice that if mom has an extreme case of toxemia, that they will do a C-section and take the baby out of the womb and put it in an incubator because they think the baby will do better outside of the mother's womb than in if she has toxemia. And I don't know, maybe the baby does, especially if mom's starving herself. But there have been many instances of moms who quickly turn things around in terms of their toxemia symptoms with good nutrition, even just the last few weeks of pregnancy. So go read up on the Brewer diet. It's a solid diet. I've done it with my last three pregnancies, came up with three healthy boys, all over eight pounds, all full term. One of my babes was almost 12 pounds. Nice, big, healthy boy. 
And the final link I've shared is to my own book, Elijah Birth, How to Turn the Hearts of the Fathers. And I wrote this book after conducting a survey online of young parents who were all into unassisted childbirth, giving birth to their own babies at home. And so this book is the results of that survey, as well as my own essays on how to create a healthy child. So that is my show today. Thank you for stopping by. If you were here in the live show and if you're listening in the replay, I hope you'll join me on call in live to engage in the conversations around these important topics tied to parental rights and family sovereignty. I hope you have a great day.